So, welcome to LSAT Pros, everybody. Uh, I'm Graham Blake from LSAT Hacks. And I'm Steve Schwartz from the LSAT blog. And we're going to answer some LSAT questions today. So the first question, and the you, and this is referring to Steve, I know you said, Steve, that you to take this test on timed. In fact, I took that to an extreme. It took me about seven hours to get through the entire test. How do you pick up the pace while ensuring you're not guessing, acting a lot, uh, yeah, guessing or acting illogically on the test? Yeah, it's funny. So I, I feel bad for this person. I didn't think they'd actually listen to me. Seven hours is <laughs> brutal. <laughs> so I said that I was talking with a student. This person was a freshman in college and he was really a, kind of a gunner looking to prep for the LSAT early. And so he's reaching out saying, what should I do? And so I said, well, people always take a diagnostic test. And I don't love the idea of timed diagnostics because Typically, you don't do well on them. They're frustrating, they're discouraging, and humiliating in some ways. And so I say, you can gain some familiarity, get a sense of what the exam is under untimed conditions. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean to do the entire test in one sitting. So you could do the four sections of the Juno 7 LSAT untimed, but maybe two here, two there, one here, one there, just to get a sense of what the exam's about. So just to start there, Graham, what do you what do you say to someone in this situation just looking to start off fresh but very early? Yeah, and that's an interesting point about being very early because in general, I'm actually a fan of time diagnostics. But uh, for someone who's like a freshman, then I think this could be a more interesting approach where you just like, yeah, fiddle around with it a bit. Um, and yeah, I, th I think doing like a section at a time I think you could maybe do like, you know, one time section, one on time section for like LR um, and just sort of see like if you're just trying to get what the exam is like, because doing it timed gets you an idea of what it's like doing it on timed also gets you an idea of what it's like and you're not really concerned with the score. Um, I, I do have some like general thoughts on time diagnostics versus on timed, but I don't know if there's more we can say about like what to do with someone's like really early on and wants to start. Do you ever talk about like informal logic books or formal logic or people always ask about what class to take in college or what non-LSAT books should I read? What are your typical answers on that? So if you can do it without destroying your GPA, a linguistics class or a philosophy class or a computer science class are probably the ones that I would say are the most apt for the LSAT. Um, I knew a student who had majored in linguistics and she did really well in Yeltsin and she said it's like the same sort of analysis in that is what you would do on like an LR so I think linguistics can be good computer science if you can program then you can uh, like it's the same kind of thing in logic games that said if you're not already the kind of person to do computer science you'll probably destroy your GPA by trying to so like I wouldn't <laughs> like I said just do this if it's not going to wreck your GPA yeah definitely the GPA is paramount it's not remotely worth it in the slightest if it could hurt your GPA. So maybe maybe you could do something like Codecademy or one of those online programming platforms just to learn some basics without running the risk of hurting your GPA. Yeah, I think that's a good hobby. There's also a, a book called D for Digital by Brian Kernahan. That's like a good overview of computing. Um, and he does include some code examples or there's a book code by Charles Petzl. But then, you know, this is like, if you're interested because you don't, you don't need to learn computer programming to do well on logic games. Um, but those are two books that can like help you in that style of thinking and, and doing like code Academy is a great idea. Um, yeah, those are good recommendations. Oh, sorry. 
Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one other thing I would recommend is like just read. You know, if you're like three years out from the LSAT, just like start reading more. That that's actually enough time to get better at reading. And if it's within your interest and like reading The Economist regularly or uh, the Financial Times is a newspaper I like that like uh, makes arguments and uses enough intricate words and talks about different subjects that it can help you prep you for the type of stuff they talk about in the LSAT. Yeah, those are good recommendations. For some other books, I like A Rule Book for Arguments by Anthony Weston. I like uh, Logic Made Easy by Deborah Bennett. Those are both some good general overviews. And of course, they're not LSAT specific. They go beyond it a bit in certain ways, but they're a way to start thinking in that way without actually digging into doing LSAT problems or reading an LSAT textbook. The classes stuff, college classes, I honestly, I've been telling people this more and more, don't, don't basically for, for college, just focus on getting the highest GPA possible. Just do that, how LSAC calculates things. If you know that for certain that you want to go to law school, it's probably worth simply looking to maximize your GPA rather than taking tough classes that could hurt it. I think the potential benefit of these other classes like linguistics or computer programming is is pretty minimal as far as how it translates to the LSAT, although it's there. But I think yeah. most pre-laws want to stay away from them. If you are naturally disposed to them, then I think it's a good thing, of course. But I think maybe like that'll apply to like 5% of people listening to this. Yeah, exactly. I think you're far better off just like reading the books that Steve recommends rather than taking a class. This is like if you're already inclined in the direction, then those classes are good. Otherwise, don't because the GPA matters far more than whatever mild LSAT benefit taking a class might get you. Um, oh, just one more, though. If you're inclined to economics, uh, microeconomics is really helpful in terms of thinking about stuff the way that LR makes you think about stuff. But again, only you know, if, if math makes you run for the hills, don't take microeconomics. It's going to hurt. Um, if you enjoyed math, then that's a good like elective to take that'll help you understand the world a bit and is helpful for the LSAT. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. I think it's maybe a little more accessible, too. Let's look at this other part of this student's question here. How do you pick up the pace while ensuring that you're not guessing or acting illogically on the test? Yeah, so uh, I have one thought here, which is that it sort of depends, you know, if because this person took basically double or triple time. So, you know, that's that's pretty far. But one thing you want to think is like, what is my on timed time? And this is actually one reason, like, I don't love on-time diagnostics because, you know, if some person takes 38 minutes per section and someone else takes 60 minutes per section and they have the same on-time diagnostics score, that doesn't really tell you anything um, because, like, the first person is obviously better at the test because they didn't need as much extra time. But for determining how to pick up the pace, one thing you should figure out is, like, you know, what is my on-timed time? Like, how much time do I need to feel like I've done my work here? And if it's, like, 42 minutes then you can try timing yourself with like 40 minutes. So you still feel the time pressure, but it's not so intense that it's just going to make you abandon all sense and like rush through and panic and so on. Like it's just, it's a, like a light time pressure that's making you not waste time, but it's not totally destabilizing. Yeah. I like the idea of kind of gradually reducing it over time and you gradually get more comfortable with it as well. I think maybe you start to spot some of the areas where you don't need to keep second guessing yourself or rethinking or double checking or triple checking again and again 
when there's no real value there. I think you'll start to naturally see the points at which you can just move on. Yeah, so you can gradually move down. And then after you've been studying for a while, you don't have to ask yourself, like, is it a realistic goal to finish the section on time? And, you know, obviously if you're aiming for, like, I don't know, 165 plus, like, well, then you got to. There's no way around it. But if your goal is, like, lower down, um, it potentially can make sense to just focus on a subset of the questions, like three games and three passages. Or even, you know what, if you're aiming for, like, 165 plus, but, like, you're just not that good at reading comp, but you're really good at everything else, it still might make sense to do, like, three reading comp passages and guess the rest because there's no guessing penalty. So, you know, at a certain point, it makes sense to ask, should I be doing this all within the time limit? Yeah, and you don't necessarily need to. Yeah, you can do three games, three passages. You can do you can skip the toughest LR questions. And if you can do all of that in time, you could see what your score is. And then you decide, are you shooting for a high score? If you're shooting for 165 plus, then you will want to inevitably do all of the four games and all four passages and you can start cutting it down a bit. But I think it is a valuable exercise to see how would I do with time if I cut certain things out. I do want to give one cautionary note that, you know, if you're something like, well, I don't need like 153 um, so I can do this, et cetera, et cetera. You, you always want to check like, you know, what school can I get to with this score? What scholarship will it give me? What debt load is it? And uh, what are the employment outcomes? Because there's a lot of cases where like, you can get into a law school with like a 153, but then you have 300,000 in debt and only half of the grad class becomes a lawyer or something. And that's just not a good outcome. So I'm not saying, you know, measure the time that you have available and then just do that like you have to assess like is this getting me anywhere good but if a certain LSAT scores within your goals and like it uh it actually gets like a good life outcome from law school then certain sections you could just maybe not do all of it and that's the best way to time it and guess the rest yeah thanks for that I think that there's a lot to be said for shooting for the higher score. I'm glad you brought up that idea about 153. You can get that, but where does it really get you? I have this opinion, maybe it's a little controversial for some, but I think that if you can't break a 150, you probably shouldn't go to law school just because you may not do well in law school. You may not pass the bar. And so I think the LSAT score is a good way to prove to yourself that you can do this, that you do have what it takes to succeed. And that requires some work now, but it's a lot cheaper to study for the LSAT than it is to pay law school tuition. So this is a good experiment to run. And so I would say the students that I typically work with, they are the ones where I'm encouraging them do all four passages, do all four games, because I think that's what it takes to get the higher score. Yeah. The biggest exceptions I've seen are people that are just like really, really good at some sections. And then there's this one section that's just troublesome for them. And, you know, obviously they're working on it to get better, but it, a cut your losses strategy can make sense and like you could get a higher score with like three of the four passenger games or whatever and guessing the rest if you still have like a good score and everything else what would you say is like the the ceiling for someone who's skipping one of the games or one of the passages you know like a time ceiling or what do you mean uh, a score ceiling like what would be um, their score limit their max well i mean uh let's let's just look at a scoring scale have i got oh shoot i'm just gonna pull one up so one thing you got to remember is you get on average uh, like one point out of five when you're guessing because um, there's no penalty. So let's say it's games a section of like, well, that's a terrible example because I think everyone with enough effort can get better at games. So let's say it's a reading comp. That's the hardest one to get better at. So like there's uh, 
like about seven questions in a passage you're skipping. So on average, you'll get one or two right. So that's like minus five or six. And if you, you know, were perfect on everything else, like everything else on RC and, and all the other sections, that's a 173. Now, it's not realistic to be perfect on everything else, but you can, like, say, like, 165 on LSAT 78 is minus 17. So if they miss, like, five points from what they didn't finish, then that's still 12 errors to distribute across the other four sections, including, like, the three passages of reading comp, which isn't, like, that is... I've seen situations like that. Um, and, you know, if you're even, like, say they were perfect at logic games, then that's even higher into the 160s. These are not, like, typical cases, but they're not, like, totally unknown, basically. So let's say they got five wrong on the reading comp, and then, on average, three wrong per each of the other sections. So the games and the two reasonings, three wrong on each. So that's minus nine plus minus five minus 14. Would that put them in the high 160s? On that exam? Uh, let me just bring it up again. Just double check that. So minus 14 is high, 167. Yep. Or sorry, yeah, okay. 167. All right. Yeah. So it's possible then you could skip one passage on reading comp. And I think minus three on the others is reasonable if someone is fairly proficient in yeah. those. Yeah. However, I will give like one caution note of where the strategy usually falls down is it depends on like having a really high accuracy on the three passages you do attempt. And I find that when people try this, they still tend to miss stuff on the first three. Um, so it's not, it doesn't actually necessarily improve their score the way you think it might. Like in theory, it makes sense. Like, oh, if I could just take extra time, get perfect, and then guess, it'll work. But I haven't really seen this succeed much, but it's just like an occasional tool, potentially in very edge cases. No, I'm glad you brought that up because that's the next place I was going to take it. You can't <laughs> assume that you're going to get perfect on the other three reading comp passages. It's entirely possible. You know, any any questions you attempt, you're going to have a certain error rate most likely. So yeah, if we're talking about 21 reading comp questions across the other three passages, yeah, you might get two of those wrong or three of them wrong. Especially reading comp, I think, honestly, is the hardest to perfect. Yeah, so I don't know. I guess I just... I have a more of a lateral answer to this how did you pick up the pace question, which is um, just improving your underlying skills. Because I think that, you know, people often say to me, like, oh, like I'm pretty good at the LSAT, but I got a speed problem. But it's actually the other way around. It's I'm not that great at the LSAT, so that makes me slower is what actually happens. Like the better you are at a thing, the faster you are. And that's the way to improve is to get better at the things that you don't know as well. And that's the real key to improving speed in most cases. Yeah. And so how do you get better at the things you don't know? How do you learn the basics? I think that this comes, or not even the basics necessarily, but let's say someone is shooting for that 175 plus just to bring this into the next question someone was asking us here what what does it take to get into the 175 plus category how do you get there when you already have gone through the basics extensively yeah so the, the, the here's the way the question is phrased it's phrased what is the mindset strategies process that defines someone with the 175 plus in the LSAT and to me how I think when I hear a question like this, it's like, you know, um, 
geez, who's the current tennis champion? Is John McEnroe? Or, no, McEnroe. No, Nadal. Nadal and uh, who's the other tennis champion of the world? Like Nadal and. Uh... You're asking the wrong person, man. Right. But I know Nadal's a big one. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, what mindset, strategies, or process could I use to compete against Nadal in tennis? And that's like, it's a nonsensical question, right? The only way you have a hope of competing against Nadal in tennis is like really drilling all the skills that are involved in tennis. It's not that like there is a mindset and a strategy and a process involved in getting to that level. Um, And there's like a thing that you do in the moment, but it's really the mindset to training rather than the mindset to doing like when I'm doing stuff, I'm not even thinking about strategies. I don't really have a mindset. I've got a bit of a process. Like I've talked about process in other episodes, um, but that's like a really big question. But mostly what defines someone that gets 175 plus in the LSAT is they're intuitively good at it. And I don't mean that like they're naturally good at it. I mean, they've trained the skills to the point that they're in their intuition so that they've learned a strategy. They intuitively know how to apply it. And they also intuitively know how to step away from it if the strategy is inapplicable to the situation at hand. And that's what defines a 175 plus score to me. That's a great way to put it. So there's intuition, meaning that you might not even be able to articulate everything at the speed at which you're doing it, but there's a deep pattern recognition going on where you're seeing new questions and subconsciously even relating them back to all the similar ones you've done previously. And I think a 175 plus score, they've either gone through a lot of exams or they've gone through a lot of exams in depth and most likely both. And I think that deep as well as broad knowledge of the exam helps you gain that pattern recognition. I think there are some people who are really good at this naturally where they'll just intuitively understand it because they're they're at that level at the start. But for most of us, I think that it does come through a lot of work to get to the point where it becomes innate, where it becomes natural and automatic. Yeah. The intuition. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Do you want to finish that up? No, just the intu- the intuition, I think, is, is what's happening because it allows you to work at that speed. Yeah. And intuition is a trainable thing. And even someone who's naturally good at it, they weren't naturally good at it as like a five-year-old. They just learned over the next 17 years or so how to do certain things in life. And it turns out the intuitions they built in life match the skills required on the LSAT, but they weren't just born doing something they learned. Um, And when you're sitting looking at the LSAT with like a shorter time span, you can also learn how to make things intuitive. Every day when we learn a new skill, we transfer intuition to a degree. Um, But how good we are at it depends on sort of the focus that we put into it and how well we scaled up our skill there. Like, I don't know. I can cook all right but lots of people listening to this will cook much much better than me and that's partly practice but it's also partly that when they're doing it they're focusing on improving their methods maybe not consciously but just they have been developing better skills whereas it hasn't been a priority in my life and I just uh, like I, I do enough to fuel the other stuff I'm doing and that's where my skill level's at it's like passable but not exceptional. Well, more experience means that you can make further tweaks, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, experience and tweaks, but you also have to be focusing on the tweaks. because. So the reason I chose cooking as an example 
is because I've eaten as many meals as anyone else has with the same age as me, more or less. Um, but there are people better than me because when they were doing the meals, either they tried to experiment with certain things or they asked, like, could I be doing this a better way? Or they started, they were more perceptive in certain ways and noticed things that I wasn't noticing. And they just were gradually improving their skills, whereas mine just sort of stayed at the level that I got them to. Because, like, I went through a learning process, too, with cooking, obviously. But other people kept pushing it forward. Well, that's because they're paying attention, I think, is what is yeah. ultimately what you're saying, right? That's exactly it. That's like you've got to be paying attention in a specific kind of way. And I think that's what lets you build an improved intuition. That's a solid point. It's kind of funny. I'm thinking about my dog right now because, you know, and you have a dog also, I know, Graham. Like dogs yeah. are very observant, right? They're always watching for all the key triggers as to like whether you're coming or going or patterns throughout the day, but they're hyper alert and hyper aware. And through that, they can sense things even before we can sometimes. Yeah. Because they're paying yeah. attention and that's Definitely. training. And I think with the LSAT, in a way, we want to train ourselves. We want to pay attention to all the details and subtleties and nuances and tricks in the questions as, as we always discuss, right? There's all these little tricks inherent to them and we're spotting more and more all the time, but you have to be looking for them. That's true. And dogs are a good example also because like dog training, um, well, it's something that, you know, everyone trains their dog up to a certain standard, but like I just got a dog like two months ago and, you know, I trained her to not bark when someone comes to the door. But then she still runs to the door, and I asked, like, I've got a trainer who helped me train the dog, and I asked, she's like, no, this still shouldn't do that. So I've started training her to not run to the door, to just, like, wait, and not crowd the door when, when someone's coming in. And, but, you know, like, not barking, that's, like, the main thing people might want to train out of there, so I could have just left it if I wasn't, like, still thinking, like, how can I further improve this situation? Um, and I think, like, that question how can I further improve the situation combined with attention to what you're doing is the thing that is sort of like the golden ticket to continuing to improve your skills. Yeah, always looking, always searching and always analyzing. And we've talked a lot about talking with others about this and writing things down. Those strategies really work. And when we ask the question, what defines the 175 plus score? I think they have detailed records of all their mistakes and they're analyzing and refining them and keeping a running list of all the problems that have ever given them trouble or given them pause. Yeah. Or even if they don't have a list, they've got like a mental flag. Um, but I think, I think a list is a very good idea and something that is in common with most, but like they're in some way aware of like, Oh, this thing caused me trouble before. Don't forget it. Yeah. Have you noticed a certain amount of time that top scorers spend studying? Like, do you notice if they spend longer than the average student? Well, it depends. Because, you know, you got the top scorers that start at like 165, and they may not spend any longer time. But I have talked with people and taken interest in those that got to like 170 plus from a much lower base, and they did seem to take more time, and they also had breaks. This is something. I don't think I had an exception on that point. They had maybe like a six-month study period. Maybe there was like three weeks off in the middle of it for some reason. And a lot of people just like grind themselves down. They're just like, can't break, must keep working, must keep working, need good score, can't take break. But I think that's actually counterproductive. I think just pausing for a little while lets the brain 
process what has been learning, form new connections, and like rest and recover. And I think it's essential. Also, not like a weekly basis, you have like a day off or something. I've I've noticed that too. When you say like a rest and recovery period, aside from like the weekly basis, do you mean more like they might have taken a month off? Yeah, something like that, like two to two to four weeks. Yeah, or maybe even like you know two two week breaks at some point over six months. Well, I think if you're studying over a six month period or or longer, it's it's inevitable that you will be called upon at some point to take off a week or two. Because if you think about it, there's holiday seasons, right? Like you could have holiday or summer vacation in August. You could have a Christmas, New Year's break. Then you could have Thanksgiving. You could have maybe a February yeah. break of some kind. It's just inevitable with it throughout the year. And that's not something to feel bad about when it happens. People often, they're bringing books with them on cruise ships or to Europe when they're traveling around. And I'm thinking to myself, if you've got a, a six month period or longer, a week off or two weeks off, it, it's not going to hurt you. And if anything, it could help. Yeah, I think but I do notice that I do notice that the top scores in the 170s and especially 175 plus like they the ones I encounter, at least they are studying over six months or longer. And maybe it's their second or third take. Yeah, no, that, that tends to be in common. I definitely see retakes at the level and it does tend to be long study periods, assuming that, you know, you're starting like at a normal range and then you're getting up really high. So like 25 point improvement, something like that. It tends to be long with breaks, retakes um and the like do these do, do these people ever ask you if it's worth getting another $20 book of prep tests nope <laughs> it's funny i get asked that all the time from people they're saying do i need to get yet another book of exams or my book is written in what should i do and I'm like, that's the question you want to ask me? Like, you could have emailed me and asked me <laughs> anything. And you're asking, Steve, would you mind answering yes or no on buying this $20 book? I'm like, really? Like, is that even worth it to respond to? I mean, I do, but come on. How committed yeah. are you to this? No, they tend to have access to all the prep tests somewhere or another. Yeah. Yeah, I think they're they're looking to do it all. They're looking yeah. to, and that's, that's you know the, something like Nadal, like for tennis, right? Like, would they be asking should I spend another hour training or should I get another set of a canister of tennis balls to, to practice with? <laughs> yeah. Though one point I will note, um, I sometimes hear students come to me and say like, I've gone through all the prep tests. What do I do? The people that made a large improvement usually never have this question I, because I think they didn't just burn through all the prep tests without really doing anything. Um, cause like what happens in the case where someone did all the prep tests is they just literally like, I don't know, did three prep tests a week or more and just kept grinding and grinding and didn't really like do the analysis. Though, so they just were like, crap, I'm out. Um, but the people that get a higher score tend to go a bit more deliberately and they usually were like doing something like logging their errors, writing explanations, taking detailed notes, I don't know, something to like really be focusing on what was happening in front of them. So they never had the problem of just running out of tests. Yeah. I think there is a lot you can do with these questions and keep in mind, there are thousands and thousands of them. I think there's nearly a hundred released exams now. So that would be about 10,000 questions. But even if you've done all of them, which you may not have, then re reviewing anything you've ever gotten wrong, maybe you got it wrong the first attempt, or maybe you got it right the first two attempts and wrong the third attempt. But whenever you got it wrong, even once, there's an opportunity there to spot the mistakes that you were making and then learn from them and 
document them in some way, maybe not always by simply the question type, but rather by the method of reasoning or a difficult word that was used or something like that. But keeping a log of all the ways and reasons you've gotten things wrong yeah, is, is think, crucial at that level. Yeah, everybody I talked to at that level had some kind of log. It's a great tip. Um, that's just like something you need. And uh, now that I think about this question a bit more, I was a bit too harsh on like, you know, the word mindset. Mindset actually is something that um, can be cultivated and should be focused on. I'll, I'll give an example of the kind of mindset that I think improves. So this is from another field. Uh, Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart, which, uh, you know, he died in the 90s or something. So I think back in the day, Walmart was like actually a really like it's it's still a very successful store. But I think it may have been like a different shopping experience compared to the ones now and kind of like a fun store. So just keep this in mind. If you're thinking about President Walmart, this is not the same thing. But Sam, so Sam Walton, defender of Walmart, um, what he did whenever he traveled anywhere, he would just go into all the other retail stores and like look around. He'd be like, all right, what are they doing here? What are they doing here? Oh, that's a good idea. Oh, what's that thing? How's that work? What's the margin here? What's And, you know, he was just, that's what he did. He just like was sort of obsessive and like was always thinking like, how are they doing stuff? And that's not the same as grinding out work. Grinding out work would be, you know, like staring at tax forms or staring at invoices all day. He wasn't doing that. I mean, he worked hard, but he was going around and he was curious and he just looked and thought about the stuff. And I think someone who gets a really large improvement is curious in that same way. That's not like grinding through stuff, but thinking like, oh, how does this question work or what's going on there or, and so on. And also in everyday life, they're also thinking, like it's not just the thing they're doing in the LSAT when they're like reading something, hearing something, they're thinking about the same thing. I frequently hear people say who've made a large improvement, like, oh, you ever start just like noticing LSAT stuff and the stuff your friends are saying? Oh, totally. I mean, that's uh, the LSAT appearing in everyday life in terms of arguments people make. Absolutely. And it's kind of problematic to start pointing it out to them because they don't always appreciate it. But yeah, there's always imprecise speech that people use or flawed arguments that people make and so that's something at least to at least be aware of but i do like the idea also of that curiosity sam walton had of just looking to see how things work and kind of dissecting them because i think for the top score you want to dissect lsat questions in the same way which is why i'm always encouraging people to try and think about the exam from the test maker's perspective in terms of how how they lay the traps and then you as the test taker want to have a critical and skeptical mindset. So you brought up the idea of curiosity, which I think is key. I always think about the idea of being critical and skeptical. So to not take claims at face value and instead consider how it's possible for the evidence to be true, but for the conclusion to be problematized in some way. Do you have anything else on mindset strategies process? I think, I think we covered the biggest things for now. Let's go on to the next one. Uh, someone asks, um, I wanted to discuss the possibility of extra time for me on the actual LSAT. I received extra time on my ACT due to my learning disability, and I wondered if you had ever worked with another student who was able to receive a time extension on the LSAT and how I might go about applying to be considered for a time extension. Have you ever worked with someone like that, Graham? No, I never have personally. I have some thoughts on this, but have you worked with someone personally that you can yeah, do? Yeah, I actually had someone this past fall, I think it was November, she was applying and had 50% extra time. And she'd also gotten extra time on some college exams or I think one of the high school entrance exams too. And so 
she was able to get the extra time. It becomes instead of 35 minutes, it's about 53 minutes for the extra extra time and a half. And yeah, it's valuable. I mean, if you have the need, it's certainly beneficial to have the extra time and law schools will never know that you got it. And so if you can get it, you qualify for it, I'd say absolutely go for it. There's forms and documentation requests on LSAC's website if you just Google it on their page and you'll see all the forms to fill out. But yeah, the biggest indicator of whether you'll get it in the future is if you've gotten it previously. But what are your thoughts on it, Grant? Yeah, I would just say like prep early to do it because I think now there's like some new rules that if you've gotten it before for some other exam, there's a streamlined process. But you just got to make sure that you've got like, you know, you've applied for it in time, that you have like a letter from your doctor or you've got the proof of the other accommodations or uh, Form X, Form Z, all the all the stuff that they need. Um, but so contact them, see what's required. But if you've got it before, I think it's uh, comparatively easy to get. Yeah. The other thing I think about is that you want to prep like it's going to be for you. So if you know that you've got an extra time, 53 minutes or double, you want to prep and take timed sections and timed exams with the additional time. And that's one reason I'd say you want to apply ASAP because LSAC is a bureaucracy. They move slowly. You want to get the approval quickly, as quickly as possible, so that you know the right timing to prep with. You want to know exactly how many minutes you'll be getting per section. Right, because you wouldn't want to be prepping for like 53 minutes and then suddenly realize you're denied and you're like, ah, crap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, then, yeah, then you've got then you've got trouble. Yeah, so it's, yeah. it's good to so know the early. The sooner you can get it confirmed, the sooner you can prep properly. Yeah, so get all your documentation together. I'd say just as you want to register for the LSAT itself, as soon as you know you're taking it, you also want to re- register and request the extra time as soon as you know that you might want to go for it. That's pretty much it, though. It's obviously super valuable. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I would definitely recommend that, like, if you have, like, something that requires the extra time and you're eligible for it, then you should get it because that's the intent of the system. Yeah. By the way, Graham, I saw some people asking online about getting extra time for being bipolar. Have you heard of that? Uh, no. But I saw it popping up recently. I was a little surprised by it. I didn't know that LSAC granted for that. But if they did, that would be interesting. Yeah, I don't know the list of, like, the full conditions that would uh, cause it to be granted. Um, And the best indicator is if you had already been granted it for something. Um, Because the thing is, so, like, the LSAT's a time-based exam, so this is always, like, a bit of a controversial issue. Um, But past exams, like the SAT or the ACT or high school tests, like, are not nearly as time-focused. So if you were given extra time for one of those then it's like stronger evidence that you know you in fact need it and that you should not feel bad about applying for it on this test because it's leveling the playing field um for like other conditions like bipolar and whatnot if like you weren't granted it before uh i don't know it depends on the nature of the condition if there's like some way that it's slowing you down that is like obvious to a doctor and you can get proof of then i expect they would grant it um but it'll be you'd want to prep that even earlier than if you've already been granted accommodations and are just sort of carrying it through to the lsat yeah yeah i think ultimately there are certain things that will virtually guarantee it like having gotten the extra time in the past and having a doctor's note for things like adhd then the other stuff it's not totally clear 
but as always, you know, reach out to LSAC. It never hurts to try. Yeah. I also want to emphasize that extra time is not the only thing they give accommodations for. And so if there's like something that you have that when you're thinking about how to take the LSAT, you're like, well, this thing that I have is going to get in the way of me doing the test, either in the current paper format or on the new digital format, then I would encourage you to see accommodations for that, even if you didn't get it in the past, because, you know, like the LSAT is the LSAT and there may be a thing on it that wasn't applicable to the ACT, so you never sought it. But I think it's probably like a lower bar of acceptability too for like non-time-based stuff. I mean, I, obviously they there's still got to be a good reason because there's some effort involved in, in giving accommodations and getting a separate room or whatever is required. But they, I've seen like a number of different accommodations depending on the specific needs. So if you've got a thing, then uh, see about getting it accommodated because there's, you know, you shouldn't be taking a test if there's some factor that just makes it difficult for unique reasons. Um, even if it's not time-based, they, they do accommodate for a wide range of stuff. Yeah, totally. And by the way, of course, there's for physical things like sight and hearing, but there's also things like getting extra breaks or getting to take it in a room with no one else. I think that typically happens for accommodations. And so that's a definite benefit to look for as well and see if maybe that's something you could get if you need it. All right. Next one is, uh, I spent months studying every question type only to, to discover I couldn't complete this section. How do I complete the section under time? So big question, big question. Okay. Yeah, so I want to break this into two parts. One is like advice to the person, but the other is advice to people who are just starting and who want to avoid this situation. Because I, I hear this a lot. And what it sounds like is they just didn't do any time work at all. They maybe like got one of those like, books which are like good books from prep companies that like show you how to do everything but i find that i hear a lot of people who like only study one of those books and then like just don't apply it to time stuff they fall on their face when they do and i think the two things should be combined so like it's fine to do some on-time work to get used to stuff but you should also do at least some time sections just so like you're used to actually applying the knowledge in the condition in which it will be used yeah, there's theory versus practice. The foundational stuff to learn the question types is obviously key for all sections. I'm guessing this person might have been talking about LR. But either way, there you have to then start applying it, not only doing individual questions or questions by type, but eventually move on to full-timed sections and then, of course, the endurance factor later. So I think of studying as being in three phases, like accuracy, untimed, then pacing, timed sections, and finally endurance, timed, full four, and then of course, five section exams. And so you don't want to do only accuracy in isolation for months and months and months. Once you've gone over the basics, maybe not over the course of several months, but over the course of just maybe a couple of weeks or one month, then move on to timed sections soon because pacing is huge. So the thing about on time versus time work is there are some traps put in the LSAT intended to catch people going quickly, which is, you know, going normally at, at a normal time pace. And so if you're just going at like uh, a much slower on time pace, you won't even see some of the stuff that's in the questions. You'll only see it when you're going faster. So if you, I think this is what happens in cases like this. If you just have been studying months and months only doing the analysis as you talked about and not actually doing it timed, you're just, you're not even seeing all the stuff that's in the questions because you haven't been fast enough to get caught by it. Yeah. There are so many tricks that come when, you're moving too quickly and all different sorts of things that you could easily fall into just because 
their common misconceptions or common mental patterns of thought that people have. And so getting adjusting to those in a way, I think, is is an extra layer of this exam because there are certain things untimed that do become obvious, but when you're moving more quickly, don't become quite as clear. And I think that's a little bit different than you were what you were saying, Graham. But do you see what I'm getting at? Um, sorry, we won't leave this in the podcast, but I actually sort of like spaced out because I was just like thinking about how to wrap up the show since you were leaving. Uh, what'd you say? And then I'll just rehash that quickly and I'll reply to it, but we'll leave in your, okay, I was just, I was just saying that basically. Okay, sure. No worries. <laughs> that happens. I, it happens. I was just saying that, um, when you're moving slowly, there's, you're, you're you are able to catch some things that you won't catch when you're moving more quickly, like a common misconception or mental pattern about a question type. And I was saying that that's actually a little bit different than what you were just saying, but do you see what I'm getting at? Oh yeah. Well, so I think that actually is consistent with what I was saying. Like you do see stuff when you're going slow. I'm just saying that shouldn't be the only stuff you do because when you go fast, there's also stuff you won't see when you're going slow. There's like slowing down lets you see certain things, but speeding up also lets you get caught by certain traps and realize that's a trap you have to defend against. Okay, perfect. So we're on the same page then. Yeah, exactly. Um, All right, awesome. You want to leave off here? Yeah. Uh, I was just going to say like one quick thing. He says, how do I complete the section at a time? Uh, unfortunately it just means, you know, if you did this for three months, you didn't like waste all of your time, but you also are like more behind than it would seem compared to someone who'd be doing timing from the start. So you just have to start doing working timing in and just study. And like the one thing I find like catches people in the situation is they start to feel like I understand it. I should be better. Like just drop that and know that basically you made a mistake in the way that you studied but it doesn't like mean that nothing was valuable, but you do have to drop the idea that like the stuff you did gets you a good score. You need to work the timing in and just realize you're starting afresh on there and have that beginner mindset when you're doing the timed work because it's new. Yeah, exactly. I think it just requires a little bit of humility and realizing that you may, your study period may be longer than you thought because you now have to address this aspect of it that you were not previously addressing. But that's okay. This is a very normal situation to be in. And luckily, there are many LSAT test dates available. And so if you have to move it back a bit, that's perfectly fine. Yeah, you can absolutely recover and do normal study from this. And yeah. no right. no harm in taking later on. So, all right. Thanks, everyone, for listening to LSAT Pros. You can find me at lsathacks.com. And the best way to get in touch with me is on Instagram. I'm Graham underscore Blake. That's G-R-E-G-R-A-E-M-E underscore Blake. What about you, Steve? And you can find me at the LSAT blog and on, on YouTube at youtube.com slash LSAT blog. All right. Thanks, everyone. And see you next time.